And so I think it's really good for you to unpack segregation that way. It is a term that suggests one group is perpetrating evil on the other group. Segregation also, particularly in the U.S. context, you can start to see its impact over generations. You control all of these systems, then you start to subjugate another group of humans. Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name's Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. So on today's episode, we're going to try and discuss the horrific events unfolding in Palestine. It is a complex situation. There's this tangled web of politics, power, historical wounds, but Jake and I are gonna try and discuss the people at the center of this, the people, their families, their lives that hang in the balance of this horrible crisis. We can't let the hardship or complexity paralyze our morality. People are dying. When politics and principles fail, what does it look like to take a stand against this violence? What does justice require of us right now? So my partner shared a video. Yeah, no, I, I had a chance to review it. Yeah, an interview, uh, his last name is Coates. What's his first name? Last night, ta Coates participated in another event hosted by organizers of the Palestine Festival of Literature, or PALFest. Tanahasi is a recipient of a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship and the recipient of numerous prizes, including the National Book Award, for his book, Between the World and Me. We Were Eight Years in Power is another book, an American tragedy, and his memoir, The Beautiful Struggle. His novel is titled The Water Dancer. In 2014, he wrote an award-winning cover story for The Atlantic magazine, headlined The Case for Reparations. Tanahasi, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us under extremely difficult circumstances. So before we begin, we want to let you hear a little bit of Coates and what he's talking about. So we're going to set it up with a section here, and then um, we'll have a little discussion. But then we want to come back and actually ask a couple of questions that I think Jake and I find pretty tough to answer um, yeah. coming out of his stuff. So here, take a listen. Can you talk about your experience being in the West Bank, uh, going to the occupied territories, um, and how it changed you? I spent 10 days um, in Palestine, in the occupied territories, and in, in Israel proper. Um, I've had the great luxury over the past 10 years of seeing uh, a few countries. Uh, I have not spent more time or seen more of uh, another country or another territory than, than I did uh, this summer. Um, I think what shocked me the most was uh, in any sort of um, opinion piece or reported piece or, or whatever you want to call it that I've read uh, about Israel and about the conflict with the Palestinians, there's a word that comes up uh, all the time, and it is complexity. That and its uh, closely related uh, adjective, complicated. And so while I had my skepticisms and I had my suspicions of the Israeli government, of the occupation, 
Um, what I expected was that I would find a situation in which it was hard to discern right from wrong. It was hard to understand the morality of play. Um, it was hard to understand the conflict. And perhaps the most shocking thing was uh, I immediately understood uh, what was going on over there. Probably the best example I, I, I can think of is, is, is the second day uh, when we went to Hebron and, and, and the reality of the occupation uh, became clear. We were driving uh, out of East Jerusalem. I was with Palfest, um, and we were driving out of East Jerusalem uh, into the West Bank. And you know, you could see the settlements, and they would point out the settlements. And it suddenly dawned on me that I was in a region of the world where some people could vote and some people could not. And that was obviously very, very familiar to me. I got to Hebron. And we got out as a group of writers, and we were given a tour by a Palestinian guide. And we got to uh, a certain street, and he said to us, I can't walk down this street. If you want to continue, you have to continue without me. And, and, and that was shocking to me. And we, we, we walked down the street, and we came back, and there was a, a market area. Uh, Hebron is very, very poor. It wasn't always very poor, but it's, it's very, very poor. Its market area has been shut down. But there are a few vendors there that, that, that I wanted to support. And I was walking to try to get to the vendor, and I was stopped at a checkpoint. Checkpoints all through the city. The checkpoints obviously all through the West Bank. Uh, your mobility is, is, is completely uh, inhibited, and the mobility of, of, of the Palestinians is totally inhibited. And I was walking to the checkpoint, and an Israeli uh, guard uh, stepped out, probably about the age of my son. And he said to me, what's your religion, bro? And I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really religious. And he said, come on, stop messing around. What is your religion? I said, I'm, I'm not playing. I'm not, I'm not really religious. And it became clear to me that unless I professed my religion and the right religion, I wasn't going to be allowed to walk forward. So he said, well, okay, so what was your parents' religion? I said, well, they weren't that religious either. He says, what were your, what are, what were your grandparents' religion? And I said, my grandmother was a Christian. And then he allowed me to pass. And it became very, very clear to me what was going on there. And I have to say, it, it, it was quite familiar. Again, I was in a territory where your mobility is inhibited, where your voting rights are inhibited where your right to the water is inhibited, where your right to housing is inhibited, and it's all inhibited based on ethnicity. And that sounded extremely, extremely familiar to me. And so the most shocking thing about my time over there was how uncomplicated it actually is. Now, I'm not saying the details of it are not complicated. History is always complicated. Present events are always complicated. But the way this is reported in the Western media is as though one needs a PhD in Middle Eastern studies to understand the basic morality of holding a people in a situation in which they don't have basic rights, including the right that we treasure most, the franchise, the right to vote, and then declaring that state a democracy. It's actually not that hard to understand. It's actually quite familiar to those of us uh, with a familiarity to African with, uh, to African American history, we should set this up to yeah. a little bit about his identity, right? So I think okay. it's that's an important part that just kind of got skipped right over there in Absolutely. the intro. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, this uh, writer 
is a black man from, I believe, New York. Um, and or at least that's where the interview is coming from. And it seems to be that he was part of a delegation that left the U.S., traveled to Israel and Palestine, and then uh, is coming back wrestling with what what that trip has meant and taught him and uh, has mostly, it's almost a, uh, a version of his inward journey like we've been doing so far in this, uh, this season. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm just, while we're talking, I opened up his um, Wikipedia page. I see that he's actually from Baltimore. I wonder if he still lives here. Anyways, and uh, yeah, he's famous for his correspondence with New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic and more. So uh, it, and it was a fascinating interview and uh, it was an, the interview stands on its own, despite yeah. any credentials he might have, codes might have. But um, so thanks for taking a look at it. And I know uh, it intersects with, a, as you just said, a lot of the things that we talk about and there's no way we can have, you know, a, a record a podcast now and not talk about this. We haven't recorded anything since the Palestinian Israeli conflict. Right. And even even in saying right. that, it's so hard. To yeah, I know. I'm, I'm the words, right? I, yeah, I'm watching sure. you work yeah. through like, how do I even frame this up? Yeah. Even describe conflict. And so, uh, you know, I think just being completely transparent that these are really difficult conversations. They're layered, they're intersecting. Yeah. And they have a, a rich context that um, anyone talking about it does so with some fear and trepidation, some inherent risk, I think, mm -hmm. um, of getting it wrong or mm -hmm. that the response to whatever said will be read as wrong mm -hmm. and insensitive. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's just a matter of saying it out loud and we already know that. Well, and this is kind of the point of it. Like here's a journalist who went and had an experience and he came back and, and, Obviously, the link will be there and we'll do a little bit of a write up and we're going to have we're probably going to have to talk to this for a couple of episodes. But um, she, he, what was the opening line? It was something about do you do you feel you can explain the complexity? And he and he said, yeah, I went thinking it's going to be complex. There's lots of history. There's lots of political pers perspectives. There's lots of international interference between the United States and Russia and Iran and all of the other countries that they've corralled to be on their side. They're all in there meddling, uh, creating the situation, not just now, but for decades. Uh, and yet the surprising, the disorienting dilemma for him was, yeah, it's not complicated. It's no. very straightforward. Well, he, um, spoiler alert, but why, why I think it landed so well with us is because he has this human-centered like yeah. as soon as he puts the human yeah. in the center of this conversation, it yeah. stops being a both sides piece. Yeah. It starts to look at uh, identity. It looks at uh, struggle, yeah. um, what people need to be safe, well, and whole uh, yeah. and, and uh, live justly with one another. And so using that analysis, he starts to unpack very succinctly. Uh, and then hang it against the scaffold of his own experiences growing up in in the U.S., which was fascinating. Yeah, as as a as a black American. Mm -hmm. So in our conversation, I don't want any. We don't want anybody to be confused. We are not making a geopolitical 
analysis here. We are not getting into the history and we are not trying to argue any reasonableness or anything from a political or ge geographical or historical perspective. We are talking about a human being who showed up as an Israeli or showed up as a Palestinian or showed up as a black American or showed up as a white guy like me. We're here now. We're all human beings. So what it, what does this mean, as you just said, from that human-centered perspective? So I, it, do you think, Jake, we're going to come across a little naive, though, if we leave off those other, not that we're, we're going to leave off the context, but we're not going to allow them to be the determining variables? Um, I'm hoping it's a bit of a pathway to folks doing their own learning. Uh, okay. I think if I'm going to be really honest with with you and by extension with anyone listening, I've been quite angry with myself over the last month because I've had to do sort of high stakes learning at a fevered pace. Okay. Um, there's just so much content out there. Ah. And I've been able to, in my privilege, live without ever turning my head and my mind to this in any substantive way yeah. for most of my life, even though yeah. um, the, 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 the context has been ongoing for all of my life. I've not had to think about it in any meaningful way other than a nod here, a nod there. Well, wait, um, there, was, there was the time and I don't want to interrupt your, your, the point you're going to make, but I do want to go back. Because you actually introduced me to this issue in a meaningful way. But what were you going to say? Uh, yeah. So uh, we're going to talk about the kid at the youth drop-in center. Yeah. Were there two or just one kid? There were two. But yeah. well, but um, I'll come back to that in a second. But for me, uh, it was um, trying to get caught up very quickly mm -hmm. and then realizing it's in some ways being very thankful that I have some skills around critical thinking. And, and, and a lot of information in this space because of your restorative work and because you think through things like intersectionality, you've taken courses. I mean, you're, you're actually swimming in a, a pond with a lot more to work with than, than most of the people. And you still felt like you were underwater. Yeah. But I think it's, it is doing some of the resisting, even going back to like church work where mm. it's, sometimes would require you to say, think about the context, think yep. about the history, yep. go back, get multiple sources, slow down, jumping right in. There's way too many people that, that pick up a, a religious text and just read it and feel some kind of goosebumps. And they think that means, and they never ever have to wrestle with what does the text mean? Right. Like if you read anything else or read the context, it certainly wouldn't lead you there. But out of context, I can see how an idiot would get there. Congratulations. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I've been really slowing down sort of yeah. the intake of social media to okay. say, think about the context, think about the context, mm. watch lots of different sources. Mm. Mm -hmm. Where's this coming from? Is there an agenda? I, I have actually, for a few minutes, I had a a lot coming in that obviously was from some sort of lobbyist group mm -hmm. um, um, paid for by the Israeli government um, just 
just lobbying hard on the TikTok feed. Uh, not anymore. It's been overwhelmed by real images of what's going on, which is good, but also awful too. So, um, see, and I know just saying that, yeah. Un unless we're willing to slow down and go, okay, this is nobody's making a judgment about the rights and wrongs that probably should happen somewhere by somebody. This is just a conversation about who we are in this moment. I'd, I'd hope that you and I would have this conversation in 1942 or 43 mm -hmm. when when the horrors of World War II were starting to uh, come out beyond just the... Well, the, the ideologies, right? So as, yeah. as it became clear, the ideology of, of hate and the latency of this, yeah. it, you know, hate being like the the rebar and concrete that just is, is absolutely the thing that keeps the system and structure. Um, whole. Yeah, that's a good way. We then shouldn't be surprised then when it's starting to show up in these, in these conflicts. So we do see the yeah. fingerprints of white supremacy. Yeah. We do see yeah. the fingerprints of power and, yeah. and um, oppression. It, it, it does help us start to break down to, so what else is happening? Yep. What else is going on here? Yep. Which I think are some of the root questions. And in and, and our starting place is that all human beings, because we have a common ancestor, we have we share these biases. We share these unconscious cognitive biases, these implicit biases. There's not a human being on the planet who in that situation wouldn't act in a very behavior in a very similar way to what we're seeing over there. So just because we're... You're, we're lucky enough not to be born into that doesn't mean that that doesn't live within us. And I think that's the point you're making with the rebar and the concrete is that unless we're doing the intentional work of, of being honest and seeing it in our own life, when occasions help us reflect on it, unfortunately, like this horrible, horrible thing that's happening, um, we, we can just blissfully never have to deal with it and just in in my case, enjoy the privilege, whereas other people can, their lot is just to deal with it because I'm this, I've decided it's not my job to deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the incongruity of it. The less I think it's my responsibility, the more I make it everybody else's responsibility to survive my ignorance. You, you, um, ignorance is probably a really important word just to give context around it. You started to frame up um, that incident at the uh, youth drop-in center. So I was working just for context. I was working at a youth drop-in center, uh, had a number of inner city youth, uh, sort of some gang affiliated and, and otherwise that were coming out. And it was uh, a fun, but could be testy crowd at, at times. And so we had different games that we would play. And uh, among the most um, interesting games, they would just like to do like competitions, like push-up competitions or chin-ups or who was better than each other? And so on this one particular day, there were two new kids who came to the youth center and they were hanging out and I was talking to them and I think it was a push-up competition and some of the sort of the regulars, local kids were there and uh, they kind of stripped down to the tank tops and they start pounding out these um, push-ups. And so one of the new kids says, I, I'm going to jump into this competition. And he takes off his shirt and threw on a top of his shoulder, on his right shoulder, he had this gruesome wound. Oh, yeah, that's right. You told me. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, we're all kind of pretending like we don't see it. And he jumps down and bangs out uh, these push-ups. 
and it's quiet. It's quieter than we've probably would normally be in this in this youth center. And we're just quiet. And he pops up and everyone's kind of looking and he realizes as he's putting his shirt back on that we're all looking at this woman. Yeah. And I'm trying to be the adult in the room by pretending not to see what I see. Yeah. And he then says, "Oh, did you, you guys saw the scar?" And I said, "Yeah, man, that looked pretty uh pretty gnarly." And he tells us that he got the scar when he was nine by being shot by an Israeli soldier for throwing rocks. He would have been uh, about 14 at the time that I, I met him, 14, 15. So you're talking to him at 14. He's remembering five years earlier when he was nine years old and a, and a, a juvenile threw a rock at trained military in a tank or just fully armed. And their best response was drop him. Yeah. And, and I remember he, he kept us um, immersed in this story and he, he spoke very openly about it mm -hmm. and um, told the story of um, coming to Canada and, and what that had meant for his family. But the way in the cavalier nature of just describing a through his shoulder injury. In and out. Boom, boom. In and out. We Huge could, caliber. We could not. We could not wrestle with how odd that was. It was using language now. It was absolutely disorienting for me. It, it shook me in terms of thinking about injustices faced by children. That was, that had to be twenty years ago. I have to say, we're lucky that he left Palestine and came to Canada and began to have different experiences within the community. Because the, you know, even if I hated the group leading the country, which in Palestine is Hamas. If my kids and family was completely destroyed by the other side and Hamas is gone, the first thing I do when the dust settles is I start Hamas too. Violence only delivers one baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hate, uh, violence, oppression. But the, the, the response to that can't continue to be different hate. So the response that's, yeah, to, that's what I mean. right, you, exactly. Yeah. But I think we have to disrupt it now because I'm seeing a lot of anti-Semitism starting to emerge and, and that's not the answer. Can't be. When Coates is, he has got this quote that really jumped out is you can't behold evil, then return and not speak on it. And segregation is evil. And mm. when he came back, what was really interesting to me is that he immediately put it against the context that, you know, in, in helpful ways, I think, and not unpredictable, put it in the context that he has lived and understood. So whether that being a black man in America, of course, it lands in terms of segregation. And there are like states where you can't even talk about critical race theory. That's a parallel. I think it's really important to draw. I think we can agree that hate language, language that incites violence against another group, is the same as planning to do violence against another group, right? You're inciting a riot, you're inciting, so we understand how that works. But the ability to express my own values and my own point of view, that, that's not the same thing. And so some people don't want to have to deal with critical race theory. Some people are thinking this should be a part of what we're doing. There's a mechanism to work that through democratically. When it ends up being one elected group deciding to outlaw 
the other group's ideas and point of view. That's when I think we are, we are squarely in a segregation is evil place. In terms of in ter place, in terms of this is the road and it just becomes more true the more we dig into it. Not necessarily, we're not at the end of where that's going, but we are in the place where that exists. So, so how should we respond then when, if, if once the term segregation enters the chat, now we can, we get a little bit more context about what he might have noticed, what he might have looked at things mm -hmm. about inequality and inequity, access to um, certain choices mm -hmm. or not having the freedom to come and go and and to vote or to, yeah. to make choices about who 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 you are in the world. So yeah. segregation is not an unhelpful word for him to introduce into this piece, into this conversation. And in your, it's a really good point because people like me could go, look, segregation is just saying they're trying to keep the two groups divided so that there's not conflict. That is not, so it's not two groups living well equally and just good fences make good neighbors, like Mark Twain said. Right. Segregation is we have power, you don't. We decide what you will do. We make your choices for where you can drive. There's no freedom of travel, freedom of profession. There's just, it's like, Everything's limited. Everything's controlled. So it, it's a bit like, you know, tying your partner up in your basement and saying you have an equal relationship. You just don't spend time together. That's that's not reality. And so I think it's really good for you to unpack segregation that way uh, so that we know it is not just a technical term for keeping two groups apart. It is a term that suggests one group is perpetrating evil on the other group through this difference in power. Yeah. I mean, I think it also, um, segregation also in a particular in the U U S context as, as I think Coates is alluding to is that you can start to see its impact over generations. So yeah, you can yeah, see, yeah, yeah. you can yeah. see how, how it grew into certain spaces. It didn't start where it ended it, but it, it, if you look backwards, from uh, sort of the 60s going backwards, you can trace the the threads all the way through to say, oh, I see how they got there. Mm -hmm. Whether you control education, whether you mm -hmm. control um, voting, you can control the power systems, the, court, uh, the, the, the courts, you control all of these systems, then you start to subjugate another group of humans. Yeah, and it's not, and this is the thing that I have to keep it's weird how I want to go to this group of the Illuminati of, you know, 20 men who are pulling the lever. The world actually couldn't work that way. That, by the time you get to that point, human history shows us it's just a lot of murders and infighting. And it's mm -hmm. a very dysfunctional place to be. When you say you can see the control that is being expressed over these groups. And we say it's the system. And then we say the system was built by other people who are white for their offspring, their progeny. Very rarely would there be a, a, a person who would say, I'm designing the future of humanity and I'm going to put this legislation in place and this and this and this. And there's, there's too much that would require too much intelligence. It's more of, I have these little biases. These are the right choices in light of those biases. I will make these choices and they get codified in the law, and somebody else is doing something else. It's the collective action of bias 
and uh, stereotyping and prejudice because we all own a little piece and we have a little part to play. And together, you can see intention in the system. But there's not like, I, I, I always feel like we're letting ourselves off the hook a little when we say, those people in charge and the power they exhibit or whatever. But I'm, I'm very much contributing to the collective action of bias and othering unless I am undoing it in my own life just by right. being alive. Right. That that's but, I'm part of the system with the I'm, I'm contributing to the intention myself. These closed systems that resist to, to these in in group systems are predominantly um, uh, homogeneous communities that don't allow for diverse perspectives or voices will continue to replicate and build and strengthen systems that naturally are to their own good. Because and they it make doesn't have be, because it makes sense them together. So it's just the so way things are. It's the hardwiring. So if the answer then is, I think what we've been talking about for the last three seasons is really pushing past that to say. It might be true that the path toward peace and justice is through diversity and inclusion, that actually you need more diverse perspectives and you need to do the work of including those, which will be the hard work, which will be a ton of friction points all the way through, but it will end up in a better place because representation, other people's perspectives will be there. It will, it will resist solely uh, making decisions for an in-group because it will it won't only be that group making decisions anymore. Okay. I agree with all of that. And I would say that when people say, ah, there's nothing you can do, it's the way it is. I would say that's a, that's a signal that there's something inside of you that's trying to normalize the power differential that you perceive on either side. And by normalizing it, embracing it and saying, it has to be this way because it is the way it is, I am lending my energy and stabilizing and ensuring it stays around. When I resist it, that's that there's a thread there that I might be able to undo. Now it's going to be my own thread. What's going on in me. If we can, if, if, would you first part of the question, am I, from your point of view, am I describing that well in light of what you just shared? Cause I, I have a follow up question. I think so. Okay. So the question is if a company, in the Ukraine-Russia situation says, uh, what are you gonna do? We have, we're a business, it's not our responsibility. Should we be saying, then you are contributing to the conflict because in your mind, the way things are, the way things must be, and you're gonna continue to solidify those by operating. Or if they say, I'm gonna withdraw and I'm going to, my part is to leave the market, maybe, that's the part I can actually do. What, what is the role of a company in an area of conflict? And 20 years ago, I don't think I would have ever brought this up the way I'm bringing it up now, but oh my God, it's all over the planet. What's the role of a company selling sneakers in Russia, for example? It's a, is, does it even matter enough in your mind? Yeah, it matters to the humans that work there. It matters because the humans that work there live and play uh, with their whole beings uh, with other humans. So I think what we what we've come to learn is that we don't get to separate it out anymore. That that's a 
maybe it's a luxury we never really had and has been contributing to making us um, more divided and unsafe, but we didn't know. But now that we're coming to know that taking that human-centered approach is that, uh, take this example of your, you know, your sneaker company, for example, um, I would bet that somewhere in that company, there are a group of um, uh, employees who are saying, I wonder if we're going to make a statement. Mm. And I wonder if that statement's going to try to both sides it. I wonder if it's going to be a hot condemnation over one or the other. I wonder if it's going to reflect what I believe and I view. And when it doesn't happen, we are seeing, and I know this across lots of university campuses as well, they're feeling students are telling place um, their post-secondary institutions that they're feeling betrayed. I'm feeling betrayed. I thought you cared. I thought you would make the right statement. Who knows what the right statement would be, but I thought, and it, it's, it's showing up as a betrayal of who we want to be together. And so this human centered is, I think, uh, requiring us to, uh, think about, um, our collective responsibility, even from within institutions or businesses or corporations, there there are no more sidelines, it feels like. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting when you think about, okay, so when you think about a company responding, so we work with companies that were founded in Israel mm-hmm. and have a huge Israeli population. And Israel has a huge amount, number of people who despise what their current government is doing. The yeah. current government, which is being led by somebody who has been charged with felonies. I mean, what do you do then? What do you do when you have, because you just said, like, our people are looking, what is the stand? And and mm-hmm. you have some Israelis who are for it, some Israelis who are against it, some Palestinians who work there. I've, I've heard Palestinians talk about how horrible Hamas is, obviously, and how they understand the just, like you can find different right. people, different ethnicities and religions all over the place. And the company is stuck in this kind of, well, what's the right position? Because no matter what we say, we're going to run afoul of somebody. And by the way, if in doing any of this, we stop making a profit, then we're all, you know, screwed. Yeah. we all lose our job. We go out of business. So I'm not sure as a company, what do I do? Do I say this and make everybody mad and reduce our productivity? Do I jump full in and make a stand and maybe go out of business? Do I like what, what is their responsibility? Well, we talked, we talked a couple of seasons ago about performative allyship and um, you know, everyone loves to uh, for a month or two in the summer, they lots of corporations slap rainbows on everything and it's fun. (laughs) And all, and, and so is that real? Is it actually, trying to lean into what has that struggle for freedom, for visibility, for um, equality, what has that meant over time? Or is it just about access to uh, a different income and revenue stream, right? So this this particular community or this particular group, I, I, I'm not suggesting that co- companies do that, obviously, that it's not a performative thing. And I don't even think you have to get political, but you could be human 
And the human side is uh, recognizing in much the same way Coates did that something's wrong. People are hurting. And at the crux of what's wrong is uh, injustice. And so he names injustice. And it, and that it, to your point, um, it, the, the, the baby that is only, can only be born is hate and it just perpetuates. This is not a one time, sort of one point along the timeline. Any point you pick along the timeline is awful and has, and it has humans doing awful things to other humans. And so if we start thinking about how do you get to the place where you can do these other horrible things and mm -hmm. stop seeing the humanity, mm -hmm. um, those are probably the clues to say we should start there then. Yep. And which is why the work that we do as, you know, we were in Ottawa with a group the other week. And Thanks for the we, phone call. Yeah, no problem. I didn't know you were yeah. there. Sorry. <laughs> and we... Uh, <laughs> We had a whole discussion about this before the call today, uh, before the podcast. <laughs> we were in this remote city, Ottawa, the capital of Canada, at the same time and just didn't even notice, doing do, working with people in the same community, different parts yeah. of the city. It's so crazy. But we were painting this uh, housing community and um, in, in partnership with the, the housing community uh, in Ottawa. And, um, and it was... I mean, it's painting walls, it's about as transactional as you get. But the whole goal was to say, look, with, with a sort of transformative approach of being able to imagine what it would be like to need this community, to hope their waiting list is seven years. So to be able to come from afar, a new arrival or somebody in part of the indigenous community, you've got three, four, six kids. You're hoping to find a two bedroom house. But like, just put yourself in that and then paint with us. And then afterwards, like, what happened? What do you mean? It was, it was a very, very meaningful two days. Um, but, but that's because we made the goal, the point, us. Like, who mm -hmm. are we in the world? What are we identifying with? What's our solidarity with? Who's, who are you using your voice to speak up for? Do you know who you should be using your voice to speak up for? How is your behavior contributing to this reality, to the lack of housing? And I, I assume there's a bunch of people on the call listening who might go, well, how is how am I contributing to it? I'm not contributing anything. I'm just trying to be a good law-abiding citizen. Then you're contributing and the same way I am, the same way all of us are. We need to unravel this stuff in our in ourselves and in others. But then we have a company that like us. And I want I want to go to a clip here. I'm gonna we're gonna listen to a clip um, where. The clip has to do with um, quotes is uh, he was asked about what he's afraid of. But before we do this, that example that I gave you about a running shoe company, Reebok pulled out of Russia, but then found a distributor in the region in Turkey who could sell into Russia, sold the same volume of shoes to that distributor and is just going through a third party. And you can find Reeboks for sale all across Russia. And I don't, personally care whether Reebok shares in Russia or not. I, I do think it is an intentional manipulation of my point of view to say we are withdrawing and to knowingly know where your product is going uh, on purpose. And, and I think that is ethically questionable. Um, but I also think that decision was just a handful of people at a company. So when I meet a Reebok employee, I'm not going to hold that against them, 
but do I, what's my responsibility with the brand, with the product? What's my responsibility with that, with, with what's going on there? Um, what's my responsibility? I think Apple has owns a, a bunch of companies in Israel. I don't know for sure. I know that back in the day, their glass, fantastic glass screen was developed there. And, and Israel is a hotbed for amazing tech. I, I'm just trying to figure this out for myself. As I'm working through this stuff, what is appropriate? And at what point am I too afraid to do something, to speak up? Okay, so let's play this clip. Uh, where Quotes is, uh, is responding to this question. And if you were nervous about coming out and speaking about Gaza, about the West Bank, even going to begin with, knowing what you would feel responsible for doing once you came out. Yeah, I wasn't just nervous, I was afraid. I, you know, I, I, I hear people um, talk all the time about how fearlessness is, is a necessary quality, and, and I have never had that. <laughs> I've never had that in my life, um, and I certainly have never had that in my career. I spent five days with Powfest when I was over there, and then I spent another five days with a group of Israeli Jews, um, and I knew that whatever I was going to see, it, it, like I, I had a, a sentiment. I couldn't express it like I just expressed it for you right now because obviously I hadn't been there. But I had a sentiment that what I was going to see was not going to be great. Um, and I know that, A, because of my upbringing, and I know that, B, because of my vocation as a journalist, you, you, you can't behold evil and then return and not speak on it. And segregation is evil. There just is no, there's, there's no way for me as an African-American to come back and stand before you to witness segregation and not say anything about it. One of the hardest things was to come back and then to read the rhetoric of certain African-American politicians who are defending this regime. And, and I just, I, 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 I couldn't understand it. You know, I wanted to know if they had been to Hebron. You know, I, I wanted to know if they had been to Masafayada, if they had been to Susia, if they had been to Tubat, had, had they seen? Had they really seen, you know, what is actually happening here? I, I, I don't know how anybody who benefits, who stands on the shoulders of our ancestors' struggle against Jim Crow, against segregation, could see what is happening right now, could see the bombs being dropped, 9,000 people dead, uh, ungodly number of them children in service of Jim Crow and segregation, which we have exported, and be okay with that. I, 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 don't, I don't understand it. So yes, I have my fears. I do, I do. I'm, you know, I'm afraid right now, sitting here talking to you. But I have to measure my fear against the misery that I saw. I have to measure my fear against the promises that I made to the Palestinians who welcomed me into their homes and gave me the facts, to the Israeli Jews who welcomed me into their homes and gave me the facts, to the Holocaust survivors who welcomed me into their homes and gave me the facts. I have to measure it against my own ancestors, against Frederick Douglass, against Ida B. Wells, who certainly faced off against things that were much, much more perilous than going someplace, coming back and telling people what you saw. This is the minimum. It's scary, but, uh, but it's also the minimum. And the fact that people are trying to suppress speech is not an excuse for you not to speak. It's always been this way for black writers and journalists. This is our tradition, you know? And so I, I feel, as I, as I do feel the fear, I also feel 
that I am in good company because I'm in the company of my ancestors. Okay, so the part of the quote that's interesting to me is, I have to measure my fear against the misery that I saw. Mm -hmm. Right? So with that in mind, and we think about these companies and these global leaders, they're responsible for the brand. They're afraid they're going to screw it up. But their first allegiance is to humanity, isn't it? Solidarity to humanity over a group of humans, over a small number who have trusted with money. Like, how do you do that? How, how, at what point does a stakeholder become equal in reality to the shareholder? Because I don't believe that's yeah. happening. Yeah, I believe You're your uh, use of the word solidarity is one that is interesting to me because I've had a conversation, a couple different conversations, but one in particular in the last month where a person said, so I've noticed a lot on social media, but like other groups, like groups like Black Lives Matter and uh, other other folks jumping in on this issue and uh, wonder like, what's up with that? Yeah. And I was thinking, well, it's the core tenet of solidarity. I mean, we, un we, we, understand, we understand this in a sort of a labor management kind of a worker to corporation piece. Yeah. Uh, folks go on strike. Other unions will hear of the other thing going on at this local and they'll join in. They'll bring donuts to the picket line and they'll drive by and they'll beep the horn and they will come out and walk the line with them in solidarity because the sense is your issue is my issue. It's something I'm currently struggling with. And if you're, if a win for you is a win for all workers everywhere, maybe your issue was my issue and we beat it. And so we've got to come out here. We have an ongoing responsibility. I heard or, a lot of from the Asian community or even Asian communities who are like, Guys, we should be out there, you know, around the George Floyd time saying, yeah, we face a lot of this too. So we should be showing up. The, yeah. the, the rise of anti-Asian hate. And that, so yeah. you did see a lot of conflating of uh, struggle because people started to see themselves reflected. So your issue is my issue. Your issue could have been my issue, but we used to be mm -hmm. um, or it could be in the future. And so I better pay attention. And, and mm -hmm. so you have a lot of synergies. And, and in these allyship solidarity moments, but there's a commonality I think that that draws people out. They tend to feel uh, uh, powerless, so that there is some around uh, organizing the powerless, so that you can sort of touch power. When you say powerless, can you define that for us? The feeling of powerlessness, yeah. so that they they lack the access or the ability to make choices or all of the important choice choices um, that other people seem to not have to worry about that that are more accessible to other groups in fact there's a controlling or a limiting of their choice architecture uh, you can have this or you can have this but you can't have the full suite and all they've had to do is maybe they didn't know that there were more choices so for a long time it felt okay but as you start to become more aware, you bump into the edges of the choice limits and say, there must be other things. Maybe uh, this is why one of the reasons I think you limit education in these struggling, when you're trying to subjugate, subjugate folks and keep them oppressed, the last thing you want them to learn about is other liberation struggles. You yes. don't want people to yes. read that it was possible somewhere else. Yeah. And so- Which was, which was West's terror of communism. 
Right. Not that it was a competitive political system. It was, but that all these disenfranchised individuals who are behaving here, we do not want that disruption in our society, obviously. Uh, And I'm not being facetious saying that. I'm saying that's a normal reaction, not to want that disruption to spread. Well, in in these solidarity movements, what you tend to find creeping up is this coming out uh, out of this feeling of powerlessness is a request for uh, one thing, equal treatment. Not better than, equal. We want the same. And we recognize to get the same, someone else may have to give up so that it it balances the scales. So it is a bit um, disruptive to the current power structure and and the status quo. But the request is just same, often is equal treatment. And what folks say is most often the limiting factor is an identity, a piece of their identity or a piece of who they sh- who they are in the world. And what's interesting is very rarely do you get, so if you think about it in terms of the, the worker um, corporation kind of uh, dynamic, you don't get other businesses running to each other in solidarity. It's the powerless that are seeking each other out. You're right. Unions go across companies. Yeah. Companies don't go. Wait, there is one area. There is one area where companies do feel disenfranchised, where they lobby together. The fossil fuel taxes, they organize against the systems that they feel have more power than them. So it is the one time where they come together. Poor companies. (laughs) <laughs> poor, poor, poor companies, but I, but your 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 use of solidarity—that's what it got me thinking about. Yeah, is that how it bring how it does bring folks together in this case? But it has, but it does feel like a bit of a movement, though. Over the last number of years, there's a compressed energy of um, solidarity, so it feels like it's going um, not issue to issue but sort of a collection of injustices and grievances that are thematically similar, even though they show, even even though they show up differently because the common enemy tends to be the systems, not necessarily the people, but the the power systems. Yeah. Yes. That were created by people, obviously all of us collectively acting in light of our own best interests based on what group we are part of. That's normal. There's nothing not normal about that. Just doesn't mean it's very helpful. It's not very helpful. Is not a great way for human being. It's been our plague since the beginning. Our distrust of other groups, and so so. I, now we have this. I'm going to go back to this one thing before we wrap up here. You've got a company with representation from all these groups working in all of these places of conflict, and they basically just say, "What are you going to do?" Mm-hmm. What could they say? Even even against, I have to measure my fear against the misery that they saw. Even when a leader goes and sees that misery and is impacted by it, what can be done? Like I, 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 I'm legitimately asking that question because I, obviously I don't know the answer to it. When I listen to Coates and that and that whole interview and recommend that to the listeners, um, you can you can hear a person who's wrestling with what is it going to take to be a leader in this space right now, mm-hmm. uh, and. He's trying to shore himself up with courage or bravery. Like, what is that brave moment that you need to speak truth to power? Um, which is just, I want, I need to tell the truth about something. And I can't even land on it. So maybe you don't have to speak until you do the work. 
but you have to do some of the work to figure out that that quest of truth, right? So you don't have to rush into it yes. and be stupid and be clumsy and hurt yes. people. But you you have to do the work. That Internal journal. Oh my God, that is what I say. I'm like, your CSR. <laughs> Your community investment program is never going to go beyond your own internal work if you're the leader. You're the gatekeeper of the, the meaning of it, of the solidarity that can come from it. It's just how far are you willing to go inside of yourself, which is a horrible, horrible thing to have to work through. I mean, it's just it can be so miserable, but that's the way forward. And so I get so if somebody said, what am I supposed to do? I would say to the individual who said, you know, I can't be responsible for what our company is supposed to, I mean, come on, we're a company. This isn't our job. And I go back to, it doesn't matter who pays you, you're a human being, right? That right. being a human being with the rest of us is the damn job. Everything else is just providing you the means to do that job. You get a paycheck, you eat, you live, you're housed, all so you can be the best version of your humanity possible, which may not be a lot given your context, that's fine. But did you, I, I'm going to reference one thing. I don't know if it's going to go in, but do you remember when Ethel told us a story about kicking the cat? No, I don't. So we were walking along and somebody <laughs> said, somebody was like, how long do you work with these people on the streets before you start to expect something, a change? Okay. I get it. We learned that as parents. I'm only going to teach this so many times. You're going to have to live with the consequences if you don't. Blah, blah, blah. This is not the same thing at all. But I get that we try and move these models around. And so Ethel, she was saying, I, you know, I was, I was, somebody confronted me with that. And I told him the story about Larry. I don't remember his name is Larry's walking along and Larry has been living on the streets for decades. He's, he's so ill. He's so sick. His internal organs are so eaten up by drinking Lysol so often. He's just a mess. He's on and off his meds. He's in and out of jail. Nobody cares for him. He's alone in the world. And it's, it's a tough road. And he's angry. He's angry all the time, like any of us would be. Constant pain from his teeth, the whole thing, because he can't get his teeth pulled and all this kind of stuff. And he's walking along and he's shuffling along. And walking about is, is, is about as much as this guy can do, just shuffling along the street. And this cat runs out in front of him and stomps right in front of him, right in his way. You know cats, they're like that. They're just like <laughs> yes. right on your feet. And this cat just stopped. And Larry looked down and his fists clenched and he pushed his foot back. And, and he, she said, I knew he was going to boot that cat as hard as he could. And then I saw him just sort of come to himself and think, nope, I'm not going to do that. He put his hands down and he walked around the cat and kept going. And this is where that phrase... You know, that was the best that Larry could do that day. That was his highest level of contribution. He didn't kick the cat. Yeah. And maybe that's where some of us are on this. Like we just, we're at the bare minimum of a place, but, but you're so right, Jacob, that the first step is not the company's response. It's not organizing and all those things are great. But if we haven't taken the first step internally, then the rest of that is just maybe misinformed good intentions that's going to land at best performative yeah and, and and at worst cause new new and additional harms right so people who are already hurting will not be made better by any comment you make or any statement you make yeah um and what they need from 
it turns out what we need from each other, some of the basic pieces, which is we need to be heard, we need to be seen, and we need to know that our, our contribution matters, both interpersonally, but then also scaling it out, sort of our relationships to the systems and structures uh, around us too. But what it's a good proxy yeah. to do it relationally. Okay, so that, and I think it's also a good proxy in terms of calling us to remember what matters. So none of us should watch that or be aware of it and not initially have be horrified that that right. lives inside of us. First, you, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that that's their problem in that context at that time. And I would never do that. That the, the stuff that made all of that possible for decades, for millennia lives in you. We can actually see it on a microscope yeah. in your DNA. It's yeah. in you. But there's hope that it doesn't have to be. If if we're willing to face that stuff inside of us, the Palestine-Israeli conflict that resides in us, then there's hope that we won't be owned uh, and managed and measured by that, that we'll do better than kicking the cat in our life. Yeah, 100%. All right, pick it up next week. Sounds great. All right, thanks, Jake.